Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, US Trade and Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, two big things happened. On Tuesday, July 24th, the Trump administration announced a rescue package for American farmers of up to $12 billion. The second thing that happened was on Wednesday, July 25th, trade peace broke out between the US and the EU. As everyone listening to the podcast should know, this deal that Juncker agreed with President Trump was a weird sort of deal. It was a deal to agree on another deal in the future. In the short term, the biggest bit of the deal could be that it means that trade relations between the US and the EU might not get much worse than they are now, which is good. Very good. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the first of these things. Because even though now apparently the EU and the US love each other, and even if the EU and the US were to lift the tariffs that have gone on this year, American farmers are still going to be hit hard by all this trade stuff that's happening. I did the math, about 15% of US agricultural exports went to China last year, and China is hitting almost all of that with retaliation. And until this China dispute gets resolved, that number really isn't going to get any smaller. To talk us through the economics of all this, we have today with us Joe Glauber. For 30 years, Joe worked at the US Department of Agriculture. And between 2008 and 2014, he was USDA's chief economist. But now he's a senior fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, or IFPRI as it's better known. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start from first principles. Suppose you had perfectly free markets in agriculture, no subsidies, no tariffs, no nothing. Are there any good reasons for the government to intervene? Well, I think there are a couple of areas where it's good for government intervention, and these are essentially public goods. Uh, These are things that the government provides that the feeling is, is probably the private sector wouldn't provide in its absence. Uh, at least traditionally, we, we USDA was involved from its inception in 1862 with plant development and uh, disseminating information. And both of those are continue today. Uh, USDA provides some four or five billion dollars in research and development uh, funds every year, and that helps you know uh, increase productivity, which is all good. USDA has a, a variety of services like inspection services that guard on on food safety, uh, guard on animal and, and plant health. So clearly governments around the world are intervening in many more ways than that. So what are some of the justifications that they give for doing so? Many would argue that agriculture is unique in the sense that it faces risks due to weather of vagaries. Farmers plant oftentimes nine months before they harvest And so these are seen as justifications to provide some support or safety net for farmers. The other argument would be food security. And while I think many would dispute that, uh, some countries argue that they need to support agriculture so that they are ensured that they have adequate food supplies. And so there the basic argument is they're worried about getting cut off from food from the rest of the world, somebody might stop exporting rice to them in their times of need, and they so they sort of can't trust the rest of the world. That's right. And unlike automobiles, you can go a long time without getting a new car with food. You need to eat every day. Can you describe some of the broad unintended consequences of these kinds of support for the agricultural sector? Yeah, I think a lot of the support that we see in agriculture Because these programs often involve incentives to plant more crops, produce more livestock products, dairy products, other things, they 
have a distortionary effect on those markets. And what we see oftentimes is when you have farmers not following market signals, but following prices that are set by the government is they overproduce certain commodities and those end up in surpluses. Those surpluses oftentimes are disposed of in world markets, which lower the price in world markets for other producers. So a problem I always have in this area is that on the one hand, you worry about prices being too low because of your producers. But on the other hand, low prices are really great if you're starving and you know are struggling to afford food. Could you talk about that balance? No, sure. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and I had mentioned earlier research and development. What we've seen from research and development is enormous productivity gains in agriculture. That has actually brought down the price of, of, of food. And that, that's a very good thing. Where does the U.S. government's current array of policies fit into all of this? The U.S. runs a wide range of policies, research and development, inspection. They provide monies to farmers for uh, environmental services. They also provide price support, income support to farmers. They, They have a heavily subsidized crop insurance program. And many of these programs date back to the Depression era in the 1930s. Of these different kinds of support, which distort trade the most? Typically, when economists look at this, we say if if support's tied to price, if it's tied to production, then those are in particular distorting. Uh, Obviously, any support to a farmer helps their income and keeps them in farming and to a degree at a very general level is distorting. But if you talk about a support that's tied to a commodity, say, for example, for every bushel of corn that you produce, you're eligible for a support. There are enormous incentives to grow more corn. And I think that's been part of the problem that what we've seen reforms in in U.S. agricultural policy is try to move away from those sorts of real, really distortive programs. But they still are tied to production, still give producers uh, income support when prices are low. And and in, in that sense, remain distorting. Why does U.S. policy diverge from this economist's ideal vision of policy? Traditionally, if you go back to the the 30s, that's the way the the programs were structured. They provided a lot of support. It was seen as a justification because farm incomes were so much lower than non-farm incomes. Fast forward to the 2018 and farm households in the U.S. on at least if you look at the median income are about 30 percent higher than non-farm households. So the justification of providing support to help poor farmers is, frankly, just not there anymore. I I don't think we still have these programs, and they persist largely because the beneficiaries want them to persist. So you have, you know, classic lobbying behavior and other things that keep Congress thinking that they should continue to pass these farm bills every five years. There are some rules for agriculture and subsidies in the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Presumably, there are tighter rules for these more distortive kinds of subsidies out there? Yes, absolutely. So the WTO distinguishes between programs that are trade distorting and and production distorting and those that aren't. And those that are distorting or seen as trade distorting from the WTO perspective, they come under discipline. Countries have what is known as an uh, aggregate measurement of support, which is the totaling of all their trade distorting support. And under the Uruguay round, which created the WTO, countries were given bindings, that is, allowances of how much support they could provide to their producers. Developed countries had to reduce those by 20 percent. 
And under those bindings, the U.S. now operates. Uh, we have a total binding for our trade distorting support of $19.1 billion. But as I mentioned, if, a, if support is not considered trade distorting, there are rules or there are criteria that those programs have to meet, which you often hear called the green box. And these are policies that are considered non-trade distorting. They're fine. You do have to notify those to the WTO, however. And so every year the U.S. notifies both its so-called trade distorting support or amber support and also its so-called green box support, the non-distorting. Examples of, of non-distortionary support or so-called green box support would be expenditures that we provide poor people in the form of supplement, supplemental nutrition assistance, things like ins uh, inspection services, research and development monies. All those are reported in the, in the green box. Some environmental programs are, in, are reported in the green box. And if particular insurance-type programs qualify, and again, the criteria are very strict on what qualifies or what doesn't qualify, they too could be notified as so-called green box policy. So are there any kind of subsidies out there that are just flat out banned? Yes, there are policies that are no longer permissible under the WTO. Uh, export subsidies, which were very disruptive in the 1980s in particular, the Uruguay Round actually have disciplines on export subsidies that reduced subsidies, both in terms of volume and value. And those are subsidies that are specifically tied to exporting, so you get more money if you export. Yes, exactly. These are particularly tied to exports. And so they also provide support to farmers, obviously, because they lift prices in the domestic market. But in specific markets, they are particularly pernicious for other exporters. And so they were, uh, that was seen as, a, as a, one of the really big accomplishments of the Uruguay Round to, put, uh, to cap those. Nairobi. We have a ministerial in 2015, and the WTO members decide to get rid of export subsidies altogether. And uh, frankly, it's been one of the biggest reforms post-Uruguay round uh, in the WTO as far as agriculture is concerned. Very significant. Countries now, um, or at least in the next few years, have to phase out all forms of export subsidies. And I think most would view that as a very, very good thing. Can you describe the general trend in U.S. agriculture policy as it relates to these limits set on the international stage? Yes, I, I think that generally, uh, certainly since the WTO came in effect, but even, even prior to that, U.S. had started on some reforms and moved away from tying production to very high support prices, moved to what's called more decoupled payments. Those are pay payments that aren't tied to uh, production. They're based on what was historically grown, not currently grown. And there's a, a larger reliance on so-called safety net programs like insurance. And so farmers buy insurance to protect against yield loss or in some cases revenue loss. The government subsidizes those programs. So there's still a lot of monies going to agriculture. But in terms of the the type of support is less distortionary. Uh, so, for example, in our $19.1 billion limit. That's Amber Box. Amber Box. When the U.S. Uh, most recently notified, they notified at a uh, little less than $4 billion. So they're well below their bindings, but they still provide a lot of support. And uh, some of that is distortionary, but it's deemed de minimis. That is that it's less than 5% of the value of production. So wait, there's a de minimis, so you can do anything as long as it's worth less than 5% of the value of your crop? 
Yes, that's exactly how those rules work, at least for de- developed countries. For developing countries, it's a 10% de minimis. And for China, which came in under its own accession agreement to the WTO, it's 8.5% of their production. But what that means is that you can put a lot of support into agriculture that doesn't really come into the, under strict discipline of the so-called AMS limit, the 19.1 billion uh, limit on distortionary support. For example, the aggregate measurement of support for the U.S. for 2015 was a little less than $4 billion. However, there was de minimis support totaling almost $13 billion provided in that year as well. The U.S. was very upfront. They notified all of it. But you can see that it's still a lot of support and a lot of distortionary support being given to agriculture. So how do they do that? Is it just provided that you're 5 percent of the value of a particular crop. So it's, you know, 5% of the value or less of nuts and then fruit and then sugar. And then, and then just all of these things add up to 13 billion, but provided you don't go above 5% over any individual thing. If they have de minimis limits on product specific support. So exactly for in a great example is soybeans. Soybeans in 2015, we provided about one and a half billion worth of support in crop insurance subsidies for soybeans, but it was less than 5% of the value of soybean production that year. So it wasn't included in our aggregate measurement of support. There is also a category for non-product specific support, and the U.S. provides a lot of more generic support where, uh, for example, a lot of these uh, payments that are made on historical production, they don't care if you grow corn or soybeans or wheat or other crops on that acre of land, you get a payment that is tied to what you historically produce. The U.S. considers that non-product specific support. Other countries disagree, but the U.S. does provide a lot of non-product specific support, and that is totaled and valued against 5% of the total of agricultural production. In the U.S., that's $20 billion. That is, we, we produce about four $400 billion, 5%, $20 billion. So that's a lot of additional support that can be provided. And I think in 2015, as part of this $13 billion, about eight of that was non-product specific support. So you're the Trump administration and you're trying to help out American farmers. What are the constraints imposed upon you by these international commitments at the WTO? Well, first, there is the overall binding on, on domestic support, the, the AMS cap that we've been talking about, the $19.1 billion. So if you're going to provide additional support and it's trade distorting, you're going to be limited by that $19.1 billion. But I would say this, giving additional support in the form of distortionary support really moves things backwards a bit in the sense that, that countries, not just the U.S., but other countries have reduced domestic support far below their binding. So if you look at most of the developed world, the European Union, Japan, others have all reduced their domestic support levels. The U.S. as well, as I said, we're at $4 billion, our binding's at $19.1 billion. So putting a lot more money into domestic support will be a reversal, certainly, of direction. And, and I think even if it comes within the $19.1 billion cap, is certainly counter to the trends that, have, that the WTO would like to encourage. Let's talk about what the Trump administration is doing and this policy package that they've announced. So first of all, how are they doing this? What authority are they using? Last time I checked, you had to check with Congress before you did this kind of thing. So there are two pieces of legislation that date back to the 30s that the U.S. is using 
to provide assistance to farmers. These are rarely used. We have something called Section 32 authorities, which is essentially tariff revenues that come into the government. About 30% of them can be used for agricultural purposes. It's, it's actually a fairly limited amount of money that can be used, but they have been used in the past to purchase commodities, to provide those commodities for school lunch programs, other nutrition programs. And we do that every year. But occasionally, they have been used to bolster prices for producers when prices are low. Again, limited amount of money that can be used for that, largely used for consumer-ready foods. So fruits and vegetables, poultry, meat, other things. In addition to that, there is uh, something called the Commodity Credit Corporation Act. And that is the enabling legislation to pay farmers under the farm legislation that started in the 30s. And we use the CCC to the tune of, uh, I think it's authorized annually at about $30 billion. Our outlays have been more on the order of $20 billion or, or less, but it's been used to implement all the farm programs that are set every five years under the farm bill. In addition, however, there is authorities within the Commodity Credit Corporation Act, the so-called Charter Act, that allows the secretary to boost prices uh, for individuals. These are very rarely used. But I think most of these monies will come out of the Charter Act. Uh, again, the, the amount mentioned by our, in, in the press release was $12 billion. Uh, I think that's unprecedented in terms of support, certainly unprecedented for the Charter Act. In the past, the Charter Act has been used very rarely for very small amounts. Certainly, Congress has passed supplemental legislation in the past to bail out farmers in the event of large disasters, or in the case of, say, the 1998 Asian financial crisis, they gave farmers uh, payments for so-called market losses because prices were low. And even those supplementals were on the order of six, eight billion dollars, large, large supplementals at the time. But this, uh, again, is, I think, unprecedented, not just for its use of CCC Charter Act in that uh, amounts, but also uh, just in its sheer size. Why do you think the Trump administration is using this rarely used law and not just going to Congress and saying, hey, we need to help out our farmers, please give us the cash? Yes. Yeah, so, there, so there were two other options for the president. One, he could go to Congress. They're in the midst of debating a farm bill. He could say, why not include something for 2018 in the farm bill? Alternatively, he could go to Congress and say, why don't we have a supplemental, think about a supplemental legislation where we help bail out farmers because of this. I think there's a number of problems with that. One is that anytime you go to Congress and are asking to change farm policy, they have to find money for, for it. This isn't something that they can just say, okay, here's $12 billion. The commodity, the beauty of the Commodity Credit Corporation Act, in one sense, is that's existing legislation. They have authority, USDA has authority to do that. In fact, a, a lot of the critics worry that this is almost giving unbridled authority to spend whatever you want on farm programs. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. I think going to Congress to try to find $12 billion would have been far more difficult. And and I think the, the other side that I think people would argue is that it also would be difficult to get done in a timely way. And so uh, this is an action the, the Trump administration feels they can take right away and, and provide support to farmers. But this does have some similarities, it sounds like, with the laws under which President Trump is imposing tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs under Section 232, this Section 301 tariffs against China, laws that give the president real broad discretion 
to do what he wants for as long as he wants at whatever levels he wants. Sonny Perdue, Secretary of Agriculture, on July 24th basically announced three things. The government is going to offer price support to farmers, so that means payments to producers of certain crops. It's also going to buy surpluses that farmers can't sell because their export markets are now closed. It also means they're going to spend money to help develop export markets. So let, let's go through the three of these in reverse order. What could that help to develop export markets look like? USDA currently has some so-called market promotion programs, and I think that's what's being considered here. In terms of market promotion programs, that may mean setting up a, you know, exhibits at, at food fairs in other countries. It means supporting salaries of commodity groups and others who have offices in these countries to promote their products. And there's something funny about the fact that essentially the Trump administration is giving farmers help with promoting the export markets when the problem that they're trying to fix is that those export markets have been closed as a result of the Trump administration's policies. But let's go on to the next one. So what about this idea that the government is going to buy up surplus stocks of food and give them to food banks or nutrition programs? The second program to remove surplus commodities, I think we're really talking about consumer-ready products, things like fruits and vegetables, things that will go into domestic feeding programs. The problem there is that what will be considered products that are adversely affected by these tariffs aren't necessarily ones that school lunch programs need. So they have to try to balance those. And the school lunch program, of course, has guidelines, nutritional guidelines and other things that they'll go out and purchase things. So it, it may work perfectly if you're getting fresh tomatoes or th things, but occasionally there may be products in that mix that aren't quite perfect, but, but they will serve the purpose of bolstering prices. So now tell us about the third one of these, this price support policy. What do you have to think about when designing a scheme like that? So I think what the government will likely do is, in the case of, say, a soybean producer, will say, okay, we recognize that your production has suffered a loss because of these trade actions. And we think the price per bushel uh, loss is 75 cents or a dollar. So we will indemnify you, if you will, or, or pay you uh, for that loss times your production. And so those dollars could be quite large before we're done with it. I mean, you look at a soybean crop of 4.3 billion bushels. You know, I think many people have seen market prices drop anywhere from a dollar, dollar fifty over the last six weeks. If you're talking about a dollar drop in, in soybeans, you know, you're talking over $4 billion. So you could eat up the $12 billion fairly quickly. Are other countries going to complain about this? I think this these ad hoc programs are going to get a lot of scrutiny in the WTO, and, and they'll come under a lot of criticism. There's a lot of feeling that, you know, the U.S. and, and other developed countries you know, are providing a lot of support to their farmers. Are a lot of other countries question whether green box programs are truly green, and, and they're not just the U.S. Isn't, and the EU and others aren't just hiding distortionary programs in the form of these non-distortionary categories. And, and certainly the amount of money being put on the table here uh, is quite large. And, and I think we'll get a lot of criticism and get scrutiny because people will be looking at the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis their WTO commitments. So one of the unintended consequences of this could be making it more difficult for the United States to continue to push this line that it's pushed historically to try to get other countries to rein in their agricultural subsidies. Yeah, no, this really strikes you as do as I say, not as I do. And I think that the U.S. has been accused of that in the past. Uh, certainly in the Doha round, oftentimes countries would say, well, you're, you say 
cut all the domestic support, yet you're providing all this assistance. And, and our AMS levels in the early 2000s were up near our bindings when a lot of other countries' uh, AMS levels were coming down. So I think this will get a lot of criticism. Let me add, there's another unintended consequence, and that, I think, is the sort of moral hazard problem this sort of assistance creates. You know, this is like a bull going through a china shop with someone writing checks after the bull goes through. I think the main thing you want to do is get the bull out of the china shop. You don't want to let the bull keep going around because you're more than happy to receive a check. Farmers throughout the 70s, 80s, you know, they were tied to price supports. You know, they grew crops for the loan rates and the support prices that Congress provided. That changed a lot, certainly from the 90s onward, where farmers became much more outward looking and looking at export markets. And I, I dare say if you were to talk to farmers now, each and every one of them would say they'd far rather have their markets back. We are going to have a bonus question from loyal listener Dmitry Grozubinsky. The question is, so before it looked like the U.S. had room to maneuver on cutting its agricultural subsidy commitments at the WTO, does this new announcement mean that the U.S. will never give up this room to subsidize? No, I, I don't I don't think it precludes that. It, it certainly makes it more difficult in negotiations because people will point to this and say, well, yeah, yes, we understand you'd like to everyone to reduce support, but you yourselves, you know, put in all these additional supports just last year or whatever. On the other hand, I think uh, from the U.S. perspective, I suspect it's not unlike when when I was a negotiator. We're looking for trade-offs. We're looking for market access gains, and I think f- uh, farmers would be willing to accept cuts in domestic support. My view is. With all the water in domestic support, it it should be seen as a pretty easy cut. I think this makes it a little more difficult to argue that to farmers uh, because they'll point to 2018 and say, well, we needed it then, and and that's that's why we have those bindings. So I think in that sense, I do think it makes it a little more difficult. But I do think that that the trade-offs are are, uh, ultimately what would guide negotiators in. And I think that is all for Trade Talks. Huge thanks to Joe Glauber from IFPRI for explaining American agricultural subsidies and the WTO. And also our audio guy, Colin Warren, for making Trade Talks sound great again. As usual, tell everyone you know about the podcast, tweet out links to your favorite episodes, and tweet us nice things. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks because one kind of trade distortion wasn't enough.